This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm teaming up with the website Rewire.News to explore the intersection of their work and mine on a brand new podcast called Get It Right. On Get It Right, we explore pop culture through the lens of justice, and particularly reproductive justice. I'll be talking to critics and creators about comics, movies, TV, music, anything is fair game. Our first show is live. It's a great discussion with Joanna Robinson of VanityFair.com on the way Game of Thrones handles and mishandles issues of race, gender, sex, and sexual assault. You can find it now on iTunes or Stitcher to search for Get It Right or Rewire. Give it a listen and drop us a review with any ideas for what you'd like to hear us cover. See you soon. I am Alelia Bundles, Madam C.J. Walker's great-great-granddaughter and biographer, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Yo, what's up? This is Shale Hodari Coker, the showrunner and creator and executive producer of Marvel's Luke Cage. You are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Anika Noni Rose, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Van Jones with Yes We Code. You are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey there, this is Ava DuVernay, creator of Queen Sugar on OWN, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Idris Elba, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, I'm Tommy Davidson, you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. That's right, it exists. tuning into episode 96 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Monstrous, The Few, and Moonlight. Three segments. In our first segment, we invite Marjorie Liu. She is the author and the creator behind the popular book Monstrous. In this one-on-one with Joelle, Marjorie Liu talks about her work on this book, and also her work in creating diverse content for fans. In our second segment, we invite Vincent Jerome, star of the superhero miniseries, The Few. In this segment, he talks on a one-on-one with KB. And Vincent Jerome is not the only cast member that we've interviewed from The Few. 
We recently had a podcast with Kyla Fry and also Sam Benjamin. In our third segment, we have a discussion about the independent feature film called Moonlight. In that segment, Jacqueline, Joy, and Leo talk about their opinions regarding the film shortly after its screening. And just an FYI, there is a big, pretty big spoiler that is dropped in the middle of the discussion, so I would recommend that if you've not seen Moonlight yet, I would highly recommend skipping out on that segment. And when you do watch the movie, come back and listen to it, because it is a really intense and fun discussion. And we would love to get your comments and your feedback on it. And you can do that several different ways. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, and you can also follow us on SoundCloud. SoundCloud gives you the opportunity to leave comments during various segments of the podcast. And also, share comments on iTunes and give us a rating, because you know how it is out in the iTunes world. The more ratings you get, the more visibility you get in iTunes. And that's definitely something that we want for the Black Girl Nerds podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for following our BGM podcast account on Twitter and using the hashtag BGM podcast as well. Continue to spread the word. Let everybody know about what we're doing. And enjoy this show. This is episode 96, Monstrous, The Few, and Moonlight. Marjorie Liu is a New York Times bestselling author and comic novelist. Her paranormal romance and urban fantasy novels include the Hunter Kiss and Tiger Eye series. Her work for Marvel Comics include NYX, X-23, Dark Wolverine, and Astonishing X-Men. She's most notably known for her work on the Image Comics book Monstrous, for which she was nominated for an Eisner Award for Best New Series. Good morning, afternoon, wherever you guys are listening, and welcome to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Joel Smith, and I am so, so excited because today I have one of my favorite comic book writers on the line with us. It's Marjorie Lou. Um, if you guys don't know her work, you need to get on it. Um, my favorite is Monstrous right now, but she's also done stuff for Han Solo, The Starlit Wood. Um, she's all over the place, and you will not regret picking up her books. So definitely go do that. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh my gosh, that is so incredibly sweet of you, and I'm just I'm absolutely delighted to be here talking with you. Yeah, we actually met at um, San Diego Comic Con, and when I told you I was from, your whole face lit up, and I was so excited because it's. <laughs> well, it's a lovely reaction. People are like, I love Black Girl Nerds and the stuff you guys are doing. So we I were do. we were so excited to have a fan in you. <laughs> you guys do such important work. Like it can't it can't be said enough. The work that Black like that Black Girl Nerds does is so vital right now, especially especially right now. Mm. To you know, not just it's not just for comic books, but fandom in general. Because you know better than anyone, for for people of color, I feel like, you know, for years and years, especially when I first started reading comics, that we were more or less invisible. Like, we knew we weren't invisible because yeah. we were out there reading comics. But for the rest of the industry, we didn't seem to exist. Yeah, especially, um, I mean, behind the scenes feels kind of obvious, but uh, to just be missing on the page, like just in general representation, uh, is kind of startling, you know, we had a uh, storm 
for a long time was just it. Yeah. And then, and then there was Vixen and we were like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, and now, Yay. yeah, exactly. And now with the likes of like Kamala Khan and Miles Morales, it, it's nice that we can pick up books. Um, even, uh, Riri, who's coming up with the new Iron Heart. So I'm, I'm excited of what's happening on the page because I think it's really important for especially children to be able to find books that where they can see themselves being the hero. So I like where that's going. And I I hope we get more creators like you who are like, I'm going to assemble diverse teams to tell these stories as well. Well, you know, what it comes down to at the end of the day is, um, you know, we as creators, um, we are presented with a series of choices, not just in the stories we tell, but in the people we work with. And um, especially when we're doing creator-owned comics. And so, you know, and I, I think that it's, it's really important to stay conscious of that, that, you know, we, that it is possible to make change, but sometimes, you know, change has to come with making, you know, being aware yeah. and making other choices. So since we're on the topic anyway, let's just talk about Chelsea Kane real quick. I did my full rant on Twitter. This <laughs> is very heated and upset, especially, I guess, at some of the solutions people offered. You know, instead of kind of saying, you know, trolling is terrible, they were like, go buy her book. And I'm like, yes, I mean, obviously go buy Mockingbird. It's amazing. But I don't know if fans should be held financially responsible for for harassment. You know, like if you bought more books, maybe there would be less harassment. Like the two don't connect for me. No, it's it's a it's a ridiculous argument. I mean, um, yeah, great. Like, great fine, you know, go out and and put your money where your mouth is and buy books. That's fine. But that's a completely separate issue from the rampant, rampant misogyny that runs not just through the comic book industry, but actually just through our society in general. Within the comic book industry itself, um, you know, what always bugs me is that every time um, something like this happens, um, there is a certain segment of individuals who pop up and they act surprised. You know what I mean? It's like this constant, you know, this constant amnesia where, um, you know, where we will have an opportunity to talk about, you know, misogyny in action. And everyone's like, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the conversation will die down. And then, you know, and then it will resurface with another really, like, terrible event. And you know, and everyone's like, oh, wow, I've, you know, I've never experienced this before. This is terrible. And the cycle continues. And I think it's really convenient. I think it's really convenient for some to, to, um, sort of, to engage in this amnesia. But yeah. for the rest of us, it's, you know, it's something we have to deal with daily. Yeah, well, there's just no escape if you're a, a woman of color on the internet who also speaks her mind. Uh, there's just, right. You can check, like, the Alexander, yeah. you can check our editor, Jamie Broadnax, like, it's just, it's hellish, and the fact that we are expected to endure, you know, just like, oh, well, you entered this industry, like, I belong here, damn it, this is like, yeah. I'm allowed to be here, and I shouldn't have to, to be, you know, uh berated and degraded every day just for wanting to write a comic book, like, that's just, it's just crazy to me, and I was curious, as a, a woman of color who is creating comics, I just, I guess, want to know about your experience with harassment. Are you experiencing a lot of it? Are you, do you kind of dodge it? Do you feel the need to address trolls? 
You know, I, that, that's, that, that, that answer requires several different responses. <laughs> okay. So, no, well, no, it's a good, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And the thing is, I, I feel like that the harassment I've had to deal with has gone in stages. You know, it's not constant, which is to say, do I, well, that's, that's actually not quite accurate when I say it's not constant. I, I would say it's, it's all relative, correct? Sure. <laughs> For example, for example, when I did the um, when I did the the gay marriage of Kyle and Northstar, yes, uh, um, I received I received a ton of harassment. Wow. Um, I received death threats. Oh my goodness! Um, I you know I there was like this sort of this minor mobilization um, against me. And what was interesting about that was it sort of the the harassment evolved very quickly because at first it was just you know homophobic sort of like your you know your your typical homophobic rant and then like within days it turned completely racial wow. and so um, right and so then I my my race you know me as a raced woman um, that became the target where you know individuals were you know um, along with the death threats they were telling me to go back to China they were calling me a slant eye chink. Jesus. You know, all sorts of things like that. And then it died down, right? It died down. And really the, the positive response was so overwhelming that that was, you know, that was something that I focused on more than, than the negative responses. So, you know, you putter along and you get your, you know, sort of your like, your like occasional like daily, you know, like whatever, you know, negative, negative message. And then, um, and then when the Iron Fist mm-hmm. um, casting was in, was in question, I made a tweet about that, um, about how this was, you know, sort of propagating this, like, Orientalist white male fantasy. Sure. You know, they, and that was picked up by the AP. And, and that tweet generated about three weeks worth of um, just a constant, constant barrage wow. of hate, you know, via social media. Like just, it was, it was a lot. And, you know, and I didn't, I ignored it. I didn't respond to it. I just kind of let it roll in mm-hmm. um, and went about my business and, you know, kept, kept on tweeting and kept doing my thing. And eventually it died down, you know, and then, like I said, it, it comes in waves, especially in this election cycle. You know, it's funny because um, white progressive liberals, they like to, they like to say, wow, well, I didn't know racism like this existed. I never <laughs> passed that. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay, all right. But the rest of us have always been aware this racism has always been here, but this election cycle has has emboldened people to um, to speak of it and, and speak their um, quote unquote speak their mind mm. in in ways that perhaps they they wouldn't have felt free to in the past. Um, and so, and I'm I'm seeing more of that. Um, I'm seeing more of like a sort of a consistent. Um, like sort of buzz, you know, the sort of the buzz of misogyny, the buzz of, of racism, uh, racist talk that, you know, I knew was always there, but it's just louder. It's louder now and it's a little bit more consistent. So, you know, I, I have, um, I'm only mentioning a couple things here. Sure. Um, but yeah, I have, I have plenty of experience. Have you ever, have you ever considered, uh, leaving comics because of it? Oh, no. No. I'm glad to hear that. No. no, no, it wouldn't even cross my mind to do that. Because the thing is, once 
once you stop, and, and I'm just talking about my, myself personally. Sure. Because everyone else, they have to do their own thing. But for me personally, you know, once, once I stop holding my ground, once I, if I allow people to render me voiceless, if I allow myself to become invisible, you know, and to, and to stop telling stories because of, you know, because of a few haters, like that hurts me. You know what I mean? Like that's, I'm not doing my, I'm not protecting myself. Yeah. If I, if I, if I retreat, you know, I'm not protecting myself if I allow myself to become invisible and voiceless because I did that. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I, I suffered a lot in silence. I really did. I suffered a lot in silence. Uh, I saw a lot of injustice. I saw a lot of really crappy things. I experienced crappy things growing up and I never said a word. And, you know, and I, and when I was growing up, a lot of times I felt like I was a lot, like I, I felt that, I often felt that frustration of, of, of that individual who, you know, sees things and experiences things and, and doesn't fight back yeah. and just lets it happen because, you know, because you don't know what to say or you're caught in the moment or you're scared or, you know, you don't, you don't want to sort of, you're afraid of making things worse. And, um, and listen, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want to be that kid anymore. Like, I don't want to, um, that was really frustrating. And it was really, um, in, you know, I think that in some ways there's more, I, I, I fear invisibility and I fear my voicelessness more than I do, um, trolls on the internet. That's so inspiring. That's wonderful to hear. Cause I know that it's just, it's a minefield out there and I know it's a, um, it takes a lot of strength to kind of just push them to the side. Like it's easy to say, you know, these are just people talking, but at the same time, like sometimes it registers, sometimes it just hits and you're like, damn, this sucks. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that we're going to get to keep you because monsters so seriously, <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. I give, uh, I have the, uh, um, first volume uh, trade paperback and I've been giving it to everyone, like read it and then go buy the series for yourself. Like, it's it's so wonderful. Thank you. No, I mean Sana Takeda's art. I've never seen gold on a page that looks like gold. Oh man! And let it, me tell you, I'm biased, of course, because you know <laughs> I love Sana and I work with Sana. You know, and I've known her for years. But yeah, like when I when I get pages from her, even just rough character sketches, they are jaw droppingly beautiful. Like I I just don't even. Often I'm just rendered wordless, and I'll say, you know, this is gorgeous, and I feel really <laughs> inadequate because I'm like, it's not just gorgeous, it's 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 beyond that. It's it's kind of hard to describe uh, this. I don't know if I want to call it a movement, but you know, I've I've been going back and reading like a lot of Gold Age and uh, Silver Age comics, and then to compare them to what we get now, just art wise, I mean, stunning. It's just a wide variety of really really great art that could be hanging in galleries easily yeah and that's definitely the case here i wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of blending cultures together i'm yeah. mixed race and so i i kind of gravitate <laughs> towards yeah absolutely i'm always i'm always trying to find things that exemplify that experience of coming from two worlds and usually they do it by uh, a fish out of water story what i like about yours is it's, it's a total layover 
of like Western storytelling with traditional Eastern storytelling um, from the different kinds of monsters that we're seeing to just the facts, which feels very British to me. Um, what was this a, a conscious? I mean, how, how much conscious thought goes into the layering or is it just, this is my experience and it comes out that way. Well, there's a lot of conscious thought that goes into this. Um, there really, really is. I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, I, where do I start even? You know, as someone who grew up mixed race, um, I, I, and I think this is true for a lot of kids who, who are mixed race, um, not just kids, but, you know, just individuals, um, where we learn how to navigate from a young age, you know, a lot of, first of all, we we learn how to navigate our families, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And navigating families when you're mixed race already can be a minefield for a variety of reasons. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like super easy and, you know, everyone gets gets along. But sometimes that's not the case. And and so even within our own families, we we get practice from a young age of sort of navigating um, navigating our relatives, navigating siblings, navigating parents, all in the context of culture and race and blood and, you know, and, and, you know, family history. And, you know, from a young age, I learned how to, I learned how to, to move from the Chinese side of the family to the white side of the family and, and adjust. Like I always felt like myself, mm-hmm. but, but I was also different sides of myself. Well, you, you, know, you code switch for this situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it, exactly. And so, um, the thing about, the thing about monstrous, you know, and the thing about spending a lot of time in China too as well is that my, the Asia I know and the historical Asia is, is one of hybridity. And so, for example, when we think of, when we think of the classical Orient, um, what was considered to be the Orient, it was, um, it, it encompassed, um, North Africa, the Middle East, um, it encompassed, um, you know, what we think of as Asia, you know, um, and, but, you know, but within, quote unquote, the Orient, there was a lot of trade, there was a lot of cross-cultural, you know, exchanges, um, historically. Um, I was up in Donghuang over the summer, which was sort of the, the heart of the Silk Road. And, you know, this, it was like a nexus of, of different cultures and religions that, you know, and, and all of these things just permeated throughout Asia, um, all these influences. And so when I think of Asia, I don't think of Asia as, you know, it's certainly not a monolith, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's this incredibly diverse, you know, set of not just different, you know, different countries, different cultures, different, you know, different religions. Um, and and that's natural to me. It's natural to me to think of, of quote-unquote, Asia or, you know, quote-unquote, the Orient in that way. And so, and so when I was working on Monstrous, you know, um, creating a story in which um, sort of the Orient in which Asia is at the heart of this fantasy rather than on the traditional peripheries, as we've seen in a lot of West, Western, um, yeah. sort of, you know, Eurocentric stories. You know, I, I wanted to bring that hybridity to life, you know, and um, by sort of, you know, creating a world in which 
sort of not just the not just the cultures, but also sort of you know the visual tell the you know the the sort of the the visuals of this world um, are you know are this like hybrid mix of things, which is actually very you know that's that's not just steeped in my own fantasy, but it's something that's actually you know very real. Where if you look at you know for example Japan. Uh, during like the 1920s, you know, there was, there was a ton of influence coming in from, you know, from Europe. And so, you know, there was like a Japanese art, art nouveau movement. Um, there was, you know, like, uh, flapper styles, you know, came from Europe and Japan and, and like Japanese, like fashionitas, you know, sort of made, you know, put their own stamp on it. And so this, again, like, like all these different influences, you know, that we see, um, um, it's again, it's, you know, I didn't, I, it, nothing's ever a monolith, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm now I'm like rambling. No, that's it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm like, just like, yes. Um, so you, uh, uh, where does, I guess, was there something about, um, traditional Asian like storytelling that you wanted to incorporate in the story specifically? Cause what I see a lot of, like traditional Western fairy tale stuff with the talking cats and things. And to be honest, I'm kind of ignorant of traditional storytelling from anywhere else. And it's been so, uh, just my education was just built around traditional Western stories. So I'm, I'm fascinated as to maybe what you wanted to bring to light. You know, what I wanted to bring to light was, was something that was, um, Something that was um, that was um, how do I put this? Sorry, I'm like because I've never I've never you know beyond sort of the the epic fantasies that we've seen like through Crouching Tiger, you know, Hidden Dragon, through film, things like that. Um, and now we're beginning to see sort of a growing, we're beginning to see more epic fantasies, you know, set in, set in Asia, um, you know, or set in sort of like a, you know, like a, like a pseudo fantasy version of Asia. Sure. But growing up, I never, that was something that was never available to me. You know, when I was a kid, um, whether it was in, you know, whether it was in books or in television, um, I never, I never read anything. I never saw anything. Um, that was, um, that was set in, well, I mean, at least anything published in America, you know, because we were always going to Chinatown on weekends and like sure. movies from Hong Kong, things like that. But there was never anything that was, you know, that was for me. There was never any like epic fantasies that I could, I could pick up in the library that would be set in Asia or have like, you know, um, an Asian sort of sense of like a, you know, like an Asian sensibility that I yeah. could identify with. Anything that I read was more an Orientalist fantasy. And by mm. that, I mean it was the West's fantasy of of Asia, which was always very fucked up. Yeah. Um, you know, it was like the hypersexual Asian woman, or you'd get the dragon lady, um, or you would get like sort of the emasculated, you know, evil like yeah. Asian man. And, you know, that's that's what I would see. And I didn't want to see that, right? I wanted, you know, 
I wanted something beyond that. And so when I was when I was working on Monstrous, I I wanted to set a story. I wanted to tell like a an epic fantasy. I've always wanted to write an epic fantasy, but I wanted to tell an epic fantasy that was set um, that was set in Asia, that that was set in Asia that um, you know that was um, that was sort of deeply rooted in sort of the the like like sort of the sensibilities and the, the sort of the myths and the um you know all the legends that I was familiar with growing up yeah. but that I'd never really seen like in a in a complex way on the page yes this I've been looking for um like African witch stories because everything I know about witches is very colonial America and I've been fascinated to learn all about all of this different culture and there's so many different um kind of just stories that you that are just so far out of the tradition that I'm used to that they become exciting and new. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like discovering new fairy tales, which I didn't think I could do in my late twenties. That's, that's so awesome to, that you're bringing this to the page that, you know, I've seen girls pick up monsters and be like, what is even happening? Um, because, you know, we, we get the chronicles of Narnia and a lot of white kids going on adventures. Um, so it's, it's really nice to, to see some diversity on the shelf and not just diversity, but a diverse team and not just a diverse team, but a really, really well told story. I have one last kind of nerdy, maybe fangirly question for you and kind of from your perspective. So Neil Gaiman reviewed your book. Was that exciting? Was that just the most, like, I try not to idolize too many white men, but I just, I adore him from the top of my head to my, my tippy toes. What was that experience like for you? I don't even know what to tell you because, <laughs> A, it was so kind. Like, it was actually just incredibly kind. And I was speechless. Like, I was really just kind of rendered speechless by, A, the kindness, like, just the kindness he showed in taking the time to read the book. Yeah. But also um, just in the kindness of of, of the review he gave the book, um, it really it stunned me. And it really just... Um, I I will be forever grateful. I will be forever grateful. That um, game in. What a guy. I know. I know. <laughs> I just want to say one more thing, though. Please. You know, about about the importance of, of having more people of color in our, you know, both behind the scenes, both structurally and optically. Because, mm. um, you know, there are real psychic consequences. Like, for you know, I would say, like, for generations, we've, in, in our pop culture, we've rooted for whiteness, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's because our heroes, the heroes that we see in books and on television are all white, yeah. more or less, you know, up until like very, very recently, and it's still predominantly white. And and I think there's real psychic consequences when for generations you, you root for whiteness and not for yourself. Yeah. You know, when you're a person of color and you're not rooting for a hero that is another person of color, like, I, I think it trains us, you know, not, we, we, we become accustomed, we become really white identified and we become accustomed to not rooting for ourselves to the point where sometimes we don't know how to. Mm. And I think that it's, that there's, you know, you know, it's really important 
that we continue encouraging people of color, young women of color, um, to keep creating and to not be silenced by all this negativeness that is out there. Um, Because all that does is, all that does is sort of perpetuate this really this continuing psychic harm. You know, when we don't see stories that are that are written by us and that that don't reflect us, it's part of a long term problem, and it doesn't get any better by by us being turned off by some very real. You know, it's 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 it can be scary out there. It can be scary out there, and especially when you're you're new to this. You know, and and you know you haven't encountered it. Mm-hmm. Um, you see all this negativity, you see these trolls, you see, you know, wonderful writers uh, like Kane having to, you know, having, you know, leaving Twitter or saying that she's not going to write comics again. That can be like, you know, you look at that and you can, you can feel really intimidated, you know, and you'd be like, well, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe Certainly. I should do something else. And, you know, and that's, that's the individual's decision to make. But on the larger scale, like we have to remember that that um like when I write, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of little me mm-hmm. as a kid, but I'm also thinking about, you know, possibly some, you know, young girl of color reading Monstrous or reading some other book and hopefully, you know, thinking, Wow, like, okay, you know what? Like I I see myself in this or I see part of myself in this. And Hopefully that that begins to sort of open like an internal dialogue. And I think it's when, for all of us, you know, women of color who are creators, you know, thinking about the internal dialogue that we can spark and perhaps other, you know, women of color mm. and people of color when we, when we create and the importance of that, you know, the long-term importance of that. Cause it's not just short-term gains we need to think about, but it's also the long-term gains and, you know, the, the long-term healing that has to be done um, because there's a lot of trauma that has been done to us. A lot of trauma has been inflicted on us, you know, in these microaggressions and these larger aggressions yes. that haven't, you know, that, that I don't think, I don't think unless you've experienced it, you know, it's, you can synthesize, but unless you are in our bodies, you know, unless you were in the body of a woman of color, you know, in this country, having to deal with prejudice and misogyny, I think it's, you know, you can be an ally, but I, I don't know if you can fully understand, you know, what it means to be us. I, I definitely don't think anyone can understand. And I think that's, we saw that with the Riri Williams cover when, uh, you know, women mostly poc women were just vocal on twitter being like you're not going to sexualize this 15 year old girl you're not going to do it it's it's impossible like we we take a full stand and i actually had a fight with a um a black male comics reader who was like i don't understand this this is the guy's art you can't censor art and i was like it's not about censorship because this is one of the first covers for this character and we don't have a lot of black women who are on the covers of comic books and most of them are sexualized and they're women 
She's 15. Yeah. Let's show her the same respect Kamala Khan gets. Let's show yes. her the exact same respect that Miles Morales gets and just treat her like a 15 year old. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm so happy that we have communities. And I say all the time that I'm, I'm so happy to be a part of the Black Girl Nerds community so that when issues like this arise, we don't have to face them alone. We don't have to, you know, like you were saying earlier, we don't have to suffer in silence. We get to be vocal together and we're stronger together. And it's just, it's wonderful to have creators like you and like Gail um, and now Roxanne who are out here, you know, being vocal about what they want to see in comics. Solidarity is so important. Solidarity is, I mean, you know, I feel like that, I feel like that women of color that we we do we do a ton of we do a ton of psychic work <laughs> beyond, our, beyond our physical beyond our physical labors we do a ton of psychic work and and it is lonely and it's really difficult and without solidarity you know it's just it's just even lonelier yeah and it's even more difficult and and solidarity is how we survive because this is really all of this, all of this, the hypersexualization of Riri on the covers, on those Marvel covers, and sort of the lack of awareness and understanding of why that was problematic, mm-hmm. like that, that, you know, just that is, is, is part of this larger issue and part of a larger, you know, dialogue that that we as women of color are, you know, we are, we are fully, you know, we're, again, this is about our bodies. It's about things that we've experienced and we're fully aware. And yet it requires the solidarity and requires this like constant, this constant battle mm-hmm. because the, you know, it's the, the lack of, the lack of understanding of, of what these things mean and the damage they do. Yeah. It's just, it's just mind blowing. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. I encourage if for you know our our uh, white listeners, if you're out there, and especially if you're editors, if you are uh, in any position to hire, just listen. I think that's kind of been the most disappointing thing, especially as we get closer to our creators through social media, to see that you know, hey, I have a complaint about the way you're representing someone who essentially represents me, and them just being like, I don't care, or you know, uh, you don't understand or I can do whatever I want. Um, it's a little frustrating just to feel not just the initial offense, but then that you don't even deserve to be heard. It's exhausting. We're not going to stop talking to you, but it would, you right. know, it makes the relationship uh, a two way street. If you're listening and trying to respond based off the input of your fans, of people who would like to purchase and be involved in your work. So, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I have seen and heard a lot of crazy things, mm. you know, in my time as a novelist and in, while, well, you know, I've been in the comic industry and, and there is this, there is a stubborn streak of defensiveness that, you know, is not, is not limited just to, you know, comic book creators. You know, sure. I, I see it all the time out in larger society. But it is the same. 
it is the same disease. Yeah. You know? I think because we're it a smaller community. Yeah, I think because we're a smaller community, it feels a little more concentrated. Oh, yeah. And it's it's really disheartening. It's mm-hmm. super disheartening when you see something that is is offensive and you're like, yo, like, hey, this is this is bad. And here's why. And and all you get in return is, you know, hands clapped over your ears just being, <laughs> or over that person's ears going, no, 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 I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I'm perfect. I'm a precious snowflake. Let me engage in my entitlement. Yeah. Do you think there's anything that, like, larger companies can do to help? Uh, I know a lot of people called for Marvel to maybe make a statement about what was happening to Kane and saying, like, we don't condone, you know, these actions oh, wow. and we stand by our our creators, do you think that maybe that's a responsibility they have or that this is something? Whatever. Listen, you know what? These are corporations. Mm. And at the end of the day, corporations take care of themselves. Now, if they really want to make change, they got to make structural change. Yeah. Right? they got to start hiring more, you know, editors of color. I mean, the reason why we have Miss Marvel is because they had a woman of color as an editor. I did not right? know that. Yeah. Wow. Miss Marvel is Oh yeah, no, no. Miss um, Marvel was the brainchild of a Muslim woman of color. You know, okay. one of their editors, and that's what you get when you have structural diversity. Yes. And so Marvel, you know, if Marvel and DC, they if they really, if they really want, if they are, if they really want to stand behind this, you know, this 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 promise, you know, this pledge of making their books more diverse, well, start hiring more editors of color, right? Start hiring more writers of color. Here, here, we um, will have all of the suggestions for you online if you're not sure who to reach out to. So many right. potentials for right. you guys. Right. And that's that's what we – I mean, the optics are great. Like, mm. listen, I love that we're going to get, like, you know – Riri. I mean, I think that's amazing. I love that we had a black Captain America, a female Thor, et cetera. But those are optics. Mm. And optics are, are fine for time. But optics don't last. Right? I yeah. mean, you know, and but what, what does last are the, the long term structural changes. You know, those those can result in in even deeper changes. And um and we need that not just in the comic book industry, but in publishing. We need it in um, we need it in Hollywood. We need it everywhere. Yeah. And it's not like there's a lack of talent. You know right? what I mean? Yes. There's this whole argument this whole argument that, that oh well, you know, we would hire more writers of color if we can only find them. Bullshit. Yes. Bullshit. Second that we are out there. We hit, are out there. Hit up the Tumblr. So many creatives yeah, on right. there making stories like so many great artists of color, so many, yes. just with portfolios and pages for days. Like, it, a little legwork will not kill you, I promise. And I think that return on investment is going to be huge. I know I'm actively trying to support um, books that have diverse creative teams as opposed to, as you were saying, just optics. Like, it, it's lovely. And I'm really glad, again, for the kids who don't really think about who's writing the books they're picking up. They just want to see themselves I think that's amazing. But, you know, for me, um, I know that when Black Panther came out and Tony's Coates was writing it, I was just, I had to have it. It's Tony's Coates and he has such a, yeah. a distinct 
opinion on the world and I know where his viewpoints come from. And it was exciting to be able to dive into that literature and see what he was going to add to the story. Exactly. So I don't, I don't know why these are, are complex thoughts to understand or if they just don't want to do the work. Some actor the other day said the problem with trying to diversify, he was talking about the film industry, is that people want to hire their friends. And typically, yeah. you know, you hang out with people that look like you and that's across, you know, cultures and uh, genders and identities. But it's just frustrating. You know, I understand you want to work with your friends totally, but we're here. We can do good things too and we can help make you money. <laughs> well, but so, you know, I mean, part of the problem, as you just stated, is that, that folks, um, they don't want to give up their privilege, mm. right? They, they want to protect their privilege. And uh, that's, that is part of the issue here. This is why it's, you know, in some ways it's very difficult to see structural change. You know, for me, the reason why I had a chance to write the X-Men and Dark Wolverine and Black Widow, you know, all comes from the fact that I had an editor at Marvel, a male, white male editor at Marvel, um, John Barber, who was fantastic. And he opened doors for me at Marvel. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, um, you know, I was new. Um, he, you know, gave me a chance to write Dark Wolverine. And from there, you know, that just sort of led to other books, you know, Black Widow. But Dark Wolverine was not a book that I'm, I don't know if a lot of other editors would have considered me for because I was a woman. Right. And it was going to be this very dark, violent, you know, edgy book. And John, you know, and John gave me a chance. And like what's required is people, you know, people who are in charge, who are, you know, who are part of this system, you know, sort of getting out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and sort of saying, you know what, um, I am part of the system and I, but you know what, let me get out of the way and, and see what you can do instead of always going with what's familiar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Marjorie Lou, thank you so much for, for being with us today and speaking. This has just been amazing and it, it's always so good to hear from somebody who is inside the industry doing it and, and making the change we seek. Um, I cannot encourage our listeners enough to pick up Monstrous if you haven't. Um, if you're into anything fantasy, if you're into slave rebellion stories, if you are into uh, crazy like kaiju-esque monsters, it, it's all there. And also women, women for days, women that are heroes, women that are villains, women that are somewhere in the middle, uh, women that are just trying to survive. Uh, it, it's it's maybe one of the best books out there. <laughs> Oh, and the art. It's just the truth. So um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate it tremendously. Vincent Jerome is an actor. He's appeared in projects such as Gangsters, Guns and Zombies, and Brothers with No Game. Currently, you can find him on the superhero series The Few, also starring Kyla Fry and Sam Benjamin. So, hi everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I am your host, KB, and I have a very special guest all the way from the UK. Please welcome Vincent Jerome. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. We're no really, problem. really excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. So, honestly, 
<laughs> so um, I just want to dive right in because, you know, um, a few of us Americans may not know all of the work that you've done. So please yeah. just tell us, like, how did you get your start? Like most British actors, uh, I went, I did some, I did some study and I didn't go to drama school because um, I, was, I was very ignorant as a kid. And I was under the impression that drama school was for rich people. <laughs> so, you know, and, and my mom and dad aren't, they're not, you know, they're working class as they get. So uh, I, I went to university and um, I studied performing arts there. And again, like many um, British actors, when you leave training, you go and you do a lot of theatre. So I did a lot of theatre. I did like a, like a bunch of theatre for, for a few years. And then I kind of... I kind of lent myself to a lot of projects which I didn't really feel fulfilled uh, by and it kind of really hurt my creativity that sounds really wanky but like and then I got to a point where I just kind of like well why did I get into it in the first place and then um, I you know I wanted to do film and tv so I I focused a lot of my energy on on that and so that's kind of got me to where I'm at now so yeah oh awesome but you know it it is true because I have noticed that a lot of Brits are very well-versed in theater. And so, like, here in the States, it's not as... I mean, it's prevalent, obviously, and we have a lot of theater stars. But um, I I have heard and I have noticed that a lot of Brits kind of get their start in theater, which is so incredible to me, obviously, because it's live. (laughs) So, like, you have to be completely on your A-game, and I think that you can take away, like, a lot from theater to add to television and film for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an, I, I really think it's an actor's medium, you know, and also um, in the same way that television is very much a writer's medium and film is very much a director's medium. Mm-hmm. Theater is where it's just literally you and the audience and there's no, if you're good, you're good. And if you're not, they'll know. Yeah, yeah. Like there are no take backs. There are no redos. No. Like, you know, once the curtain comes up, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And that connection that you make with the audience either sticks or it doesn't, right? So, wow, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Just to ask you, you know, kind of how important do you think it is to see men of color in lead roles in TV and film? Like, I know that this is your passion. So how important do you think diversity is for young and old, you know, male actors of color? I think it's incredibly important. You know, um, you got to understand, like in the UK, I'm sure I'm sure you you, you just said you, you've been here. And so, you know how it is. There's a there's massive black population in the UK. I know that a lot of Americans don't realize that. They just think it's Idris, Chiwetel, <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe a couple of others. But there's, like, there's, there's black communities all over. We we have our own, like, black history here in, in the UK. But as far as representation of, of black people in film and TV, growing up, we didn't have a lot. We didn't have a bunch. And a lot of our influences came from America. And to be honest with you, I didn't really... Um, you know, I, I grew up watching white people, you know what I'm saying? And and then it wasn't until as a kid I started watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I remember I remember vividly the moment, and I can't tell you the day, and I can't tell you like the hour or anything, but I remember vividly I, I, I was watching, I was in my mum's room, she had a TV in her room, and I was watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And there was a little voice in my head, and I was like, whatever he's doing, I want to do that. I didn't equate that to acting at all. But it was just seeing this this young, handsome, talented black dude on TV being funny, being charming, being dramatic. Being, and it's like, I don't know what he's doing. You know, I have no idea what he's doing, but I want to do that. You know, that's massive for me. I'm not going to ramble too much, but I'm really I'm really happy where we are now. Obviously, there's, there's like, like a massive way to go, you know, till everybody kind of is properly represented. 
But I'm a massive comic book geek, you know, and two of my favorite characters are Spider-Man and The Flash. If I was to do, yeah, so basically it's, it's, it's Batman, Spider-Man, Daredevil, Flash, probably in that order. And to know that my nephews can look at Black Wally West on the TV show and in, and in um, the like DC Rebirth comics and they can look at Mars Morales and they can, they can be Spider-Man. Do you know what I'm saying? They can be Kid Flash. And for me, that's, that's, that's dope, man. Like it's yeah, like, yeah. So, you know, I can't, I it's just, it's just amazing, you know? Yeah, it's incredible. And so, you know, The Flash is one of my favorite TV shows too. Kyla and I actually bonded over that because it's so yeah. well written. Um, yeah. and it's so inclusive. Uh, yeah. and it tackles a lot of tough issues. And for me, you know, I was just saying that the, the best relationship on the show for me is the one between Barry and Joe. Oh my God. What's, what's the name of the brother who plays Joe? I can't, I literally got out of my head. What's the name of the, the, the guy who plays Joe? Oh, Jesse L. Martin. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that guy. I, I, <laughs> there was a point, there was a point like in probably the first series, like it's first season, maybe like episode three and four. I was like, mm, this isn't really my flash. And then, but then Jesse just was like, he's just so good. Yeah. He's so good. He just kept me watching it. I love that actor so much. He's just so dope. You probably won't hear this. If you hear this, Jesse, you, you, you dope. Like, uh, I was going to swear, but I don't know if I can on this podcast. <laughs> he's incredible. And he also is an actor that's like really acclaimed in theater, right? So, Okay. He, um, yeah. yeah. So he's a singer, and he he's a theater guy, and he's done yeah. TV. He's a and, York, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he has been really incredible for the show, but just really incredible in general. Obviously, I mean, he's super talented. Yeah. But so it's one of the reasons why I love the show because it's so inclusive and so, and actually yeah. all of DC TV I think right now that's currently on is very inclusive, which is good to have. Yeah. Um, but obviously, not only is it creating jobs for us. But like you said about your nephews, it's really important just to have that representation. And it's yeah. really important just for us to be able to see all all brown people, to be able to see people who look like them on TV and recognize that, like, you can do anything, right? Like, anything is possible. And so it's very, yeah. very important, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So um, tell me about, because you, you are, you know, a star in the UK. So what differences do you see kind of in media in the UK versus the States? You know, I, I know, obviously, we talked a little bit about Fresh Prince, which is a classic. It's an iconic comedy show that happened here in the States. And I don't know a single person who didn't love it. Yeah. Um. So, you know, what types of differences do you see in TV and film uh, between Britain and the States? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I'm a star here. I'm, you know, I'm just I'm just, a, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm hustling like everybody else, you know. Uh, but, you know, right. we'll, we'll see. We'll see what next few years holds for me. But uh, to answer your question, sorry, I don't mean to get off the subject in i mean the thing is one of the things that people don't necessarily realize and i don't feel like i'm talking out of place by saying this is that in the states there are industries you know like you have a like you have a massive film industry tv industry and things are being created all the time and I wouldn't say that that's the same thing here. I mean, yeah, we make movies over here. You know, you got the Harry Potters and you got the the James Bonds and all the rest of that. And you know, so, sometimes they'll 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 dash out a little Danton Abbey or something. But um, <laughs> it's you know, what I mean, it's it's not the same. I I feel right. that with American TV and American film, 
that they are willing to take more risks. They're willing to tell more like different kind of stories. I remember, okay, so I remember working with a director on a play a few years ago. I'm not going to say who the director is because she might not want me to like, like bait her up like that. But she was going in for, for like for interviews with the BBC. I probably shouldn't even say the BBC either. But yeah, anyway, she basically, and she was saying how um, because of the way things are now and because she feels that people aren't really as experimental here in the UK, she feels that certain programs from the past, if they were to be made now, they probably wouldn't be made. You know what I'm saying? Because because obviously stuff like Danton Abbey and, you know, stuff to do with the Queen and stuff to do with royals and aristocracy and stuff is like a massive market in the UK and obviously worldwide. It's part of the UK identity. But then you can also have stuff like Faulty Towers. Do you know what I'm saying? You can also have stuff like Only Fools and Horses. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and I think that, uh, yeah, just America just seem like they're just willing to take a risk. You know what I mean? They're willing to take a chance on something. And if it don't work, it don't work. And if it does, then all good. Right. Yeah. Right. I feel like their your industry is writhing, right? Like yeah, I no, think now I'm it's knocking. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut off. But I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking uh, the UK industry. Like we're 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 doing great stuff. We're doing great stuff. Yeah. But I, I still, it's it, just it's just not as big yet. Yeah. I mean that then that's just the reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean you guys are doing great work, and I don't think you're knocking it at all. It's just the reality is it's not as big as here in the states yet. But yeah. I do see that happening. You know, at some point, I definitely think that you guys are headed in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, for sure. So speaking of just, you know, you being a hustler and and really Uh trying to pave your way and make your path in this industry, what's been kind of your favorite project that you've worked on thus far in your career? I don't know if I've got, I suppose, no, that's a lie. I do have a few favorites, but for varying reasons. I will tell, no, actually, I'll tell you the, the one that it may not necessarily be my favorite project, but it's the one that meant the most to me, if that makes sense. A few years ago, I was, I did a play called Someone to Blame, and it was a, a verbatim piece of theatre. You know what I mean by a verbatim piece of theatre, right? It's basically all the dialogue was from interviews of people. So the words that we said were, were the words that somebody else said. So even if it was like, um, yeah, okay, well, yeah, what kind of whatever, that would be the dialogue. So we, and it was basically about a miscarriage of justice trial about a young man from uh, East London called Sam Hallam. And he was facing, he was doing time, like hard time for the murder of a guy. And there was like so much evidence to, to, to show that he wasn't even actually present at the murder, but he still went down for it. And uh, for various reasons, uh, anyway, it was for various reasons. Um, and we put the play on and, we got the story out there and then a few months later he had a he, they did he did like a real retrial or i don't know if it's a retrial or whatever but they um uh, you know when you try and i can't think of the word yeah they like reopened his case yeah, to yeah basically you know and um and then he all this evidence that was there and all this kind of and because there were because a lot of the there was there was i, I don't feel in a way of saying it but there was some shoddy police work done basically a few months later they, they found him not guilty so he was let out Wow. wow. Uh, and it was and it was just amazing because because you know when, as as an actor you you know we're selfish people as actors you know we are because a lot of the thing a lot of the work we do is about our emotions and how we feel about something and so on and so forth so we're constantly mining stuff 
from within and to really kind of just there was no ego in that play at all there was a, there was like six of us in it but like that it, we all knew that we were doing it for like a, like a bigger reason you know what I'm saying no one ever no one ever got above their station as it were and it was just to have that uh just to have something that really meant something you know what I'm saying like like a guy's life was hanging in the balance and we would tell the story of this guy and it was just, so that's really so that show was is is was really important to me yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of my favorite things about storytelling. Yeah. Um, just in general, like I'm a person who loves to hear people's stories, and I always have been. So I, I think that's one of the beautiful things about uh, being a creative is that you are able to share either, you know, real or, or fictional, but you're able to share a story. And so um, it's good to hear that, like, his story was able to be told to a large group of people who may not have known anything about his his case and his trial and his struggle. Yeah. So, you know, you told us a little bit about your favorite project that you've worked on thus far. So who do you admire and kind of respect the most in the industry? Uh, and kind of what body of work or project has really influenced, uh, and it could be from this same person, what body of work or project has really influenced kind of your career path? As far as, obviously we spoke about Will Smith, you know, he was, yeah, just, I don't know, just instrumental. Like, I, as I said, I didn't know as a kid what, what, he was doing but I knew I wanted to do what he was doing so that was that obviously Will Smith is a massive influence but then as you get older like your, your, your influences change and stuff like I'm a big fan of um I'm a big fan of like you know you know Ben Foster the the actor who recently was in yes. I what yeah I'm a massive yes. Ben Foster fan in the same way that I'm a massive I like well I'm a big Gary Oldman fan um I admittedly and I'm gonna get some serious heat for this I I wasn't a massive Denzel fan growing up, like like real talk. I wasn't really. Yeah, man, Wesley was my dude. Wesley was my guy. Ah, ah. growing up, I was you know I I couldn't you know I got like I was watching stuff that I shouldn't be watching, but like you know New Jack City and all those kind of classics and stuff like that. Like Wesley was my dude. Like even stuff like Demolition Man and all that kind of going way way back. But yeah, yeah but obviously Denzel's amazing. I know there's there's a, there's like a whole slew of people that I'm forgetting. But then as I'm getting older, I'm starting to appreciate directors and filmmakers more. Like, I like I love Darren Aronofsky. My favourite film is mm-hmm. like Requiem for a Dream because it's so really? it's it's so horrific, but yet at the same time, it's so beautiful. And I just think, and it moved me. Like, I've never watched a film in my life, and it's just moved me the way that film moved me. And whether it's like the best made film, it's got the best, the actors are heavy, so I don't want to hear no words about the actors. They're, they're great. They're all great. Whether it's like the best, whatever, it doesn't matter, but it evoked an emotion in me that I just can't deny. You know what I'm saying? You can't deny the great that yeah. film if it really makes you feel something real. Yeah, Darren Aronofsky, just, uh, I have to say this, Jeffrey Wright. My God, Jeffrey Wright. Like, you know who I'm talking about, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Wright is like, oh my, he's like, he's my dude. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't, what, when it was, I saw him, I saw he, like, I think it was like, I mean, he's done so many different things. Yeah, but I think it was like ages ago, like I was Angels, super, Angels in America. Is he was dope in that, but I, when I was, when I was super young, I, I saw him in, uh, Shaft as people Hernandez. And I was like, oh ah. man. And he's, when he's stabbing himself with the pick and he goes, Teflon Don. And he was, oh, it's wicked. Oh, it's so good. Anyway, so I'm geeking out. Yeah, um, <laughs> Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright is like, if I could, if we talk about having a career where, because the thing is, I'm, I think you, Kyla may have said the same thing. Actors like me and Kyla and Sam, we're about the work. You know, we love what we do. 
uh, we love plays, we love acting, we love film, we love all of that kind of stuff. And so someone who, someone whose career I would like to have is, is, is someone like Jeffrey Wright, who can do theatre, who can do film, who can do TV, and is just respected for his, the work he puts in and the product comes out of that. And, and someone who really, I mean, for my money, has a great amount of credibility. And so someone could look at his career and be like, yeah, that's a credible dude, man. That's, that's like, yeah. <laughs> and super versatile. Yeah. Because if you haven't seen him in Westworld, he's good in, he's Westworld, in Westworld too. He's in Westworld. Oh, yeah, I can see yeah. around. Yeah. And no, no one told me that he was in it. Now I'm definitely going to watch it. Yeah, yeah, he's okay, in it. Okay, right, yeah, cool. I'm definitely checking it out. Then. <laughs> you should. I mean, he, he is incredible. He was really good in The Hunger Games. I mean, yeah. he has had the type of career, and uh, I completely agree, that people want to replicate for sure. Oh, yeah. Because he's been in period pieces, you know, he's been in drama, he's been in, like, you know, musicals. I mean, he's he really has done a lot, so. Yeah. I'm gonna, so I just want to tell a really quick story. Obviously, everything that's going on politically with the, with the States is, you know, that's, that's kind of recent. But a few months ago, obviously, we had the whole thing with Brexit. I remember I was watching it as it unfold, you know, in the early hours of the morning and stuff. I'm not sure what time it would have been over in New York or, or wherever, wherever Jeffrey is. But I tweeted something, and then Jeffrey Wright liked my tweet. And I was like, ah, and I just lost my mind. <laughs> I love those moments, because you're like, oh, I didn't even realize that, like, yeah. you would see this. Yeah, yeah. Like... And I, I was like, nah, man, just play it cool, man. Don't say you love his, love his work. Just, you know what I mean? Just chill. <laughs> just chill. But yeah. Oh, oh. But mostly on the inside, you're dying. And you're like, like, oh, it's Jeffrey Wright. Ah. <laughs> um, yeah, man. <laughs> So anyway, anyway, (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. Okay, so, um, you know, the teaser trailer has dropped for The Feud. Yes, it has. Yeah. So tell us about your role in The Feud. Tell us all about it. Okay, I play a guy called Christian Davis. Now, Christian is he okay? he served in the British Army. He did a number of tours. In the in the last one, he tour he did in Afghan, he uh it didn't go so well. Basically, he lost a lot of friends and he was injured during that tour. And he was injured to a point where he could no longer serve, so he had to be he had to leave the army. And so this happens a lot. I don't know if it happens a lot in the states, but it happens a lot here. A lot of guys when they when they leave the army for whatever reason, sometimes some some guys and girls find it difficult to climatize to civilian life yeah, for whatever yeah. reason they find themselves uh being homeless and that's what happened to christian he you know he was just down on his luck and he became really disillusioned because obviously he's fighting for he, like christian's a patriot you know he's fighting for queen and country and he believes in all that he believes in like you know uk great britain and all that kind of stuff he's like you know he bleeds red white and blue like obviously our red white and blue um right and, uh, and uh, <laughs> And I think he just after his experiences coming out, I think he just got a bit disillusioned with like with the government and the powers that be, and he just felt like you know he put his life online like for so many years, and he's like he just felt like well, does that not mean anything? Anyway, to get a bit of money, he does like a medical uh, trial. I don't, I'm sure you do them in the states where it's just like earn three thousand pounds by injecting yourself with some crazy shit. Um, so yeah, he basically. <laughs> But yeah, so he basically injected. He he did a he did a, a medical trial, and that went all good. He got his money, and, and he's trying to get his, himself back on his feet. And then uh, a year later, he starts to manifest these powers. He goes from a place to feel from feeling very helpless 
to very powerful. And when we meet him in the show, he's kind of, I think he's just made a decision about what he wants to do with that, what he wants to do with that power and how he wants to use it to, yeah, but basically what he wants to do with it. I can't say too much more than that. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, this sounds really interesting. I cannot wait, you know, to, to watch. I've heard a lot about it. Um, obviously, you know, I've also talked to Sam and Kyla about it. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds like a really incredible project. Very creative, very unique. Yeah. And so I am looking forward to seeing it for sure. Oh, yeah. You got, so, yeah, I'm, I haven't, I've seen literally everything that everybody else has seen. I haven't had no behind the scenes scoops. I haven't seen anything. So I am like as geeked out and like excited for it as, as, as a lot of people are. So, yeah. So, um, The Few is is obviously a superhero sci-fi series. So when did you first really get into fantasy and sci-fi? I wouldn't really, you know what, I wouldn't really say I'm a massive fantasy or sci-fi guy. I mean, I, I got, don't get me wrong, I got my geek credentials. But, uh, you know, I earlier <laughs> I, I mentioned my, um, my favorite superheroes. One of the things I realized about my favorite superheroes is that there are sci-fi elements, like especially with the Flash, especially with anything to do with Marvel, because obviously anything to do with radioactivity or like bionic limbs or, or or you know super tech suits and all that stuff. You know, it's it's there's a lot of you know Flash and and Marvel were birthed in the same era where it was very much a push for for young people to get into science. I don't know if you know that, but that's that's what it was. But then if you take Batman, Daredevil, Spider-Man, Flash, they when you boil it down, those stories are just cops and robbers, you know? Yeah. And yeah, so if you really look is. at the rogues gallery, Batman's rogues gallery, uh, Flash's rogues gallery, you look at the ongoing struggle between Kingpin and Daredevil and the kind of rogues that Daredevil has and all the rest of that. Obviously, Spider, like, look, just look at the Sinister, the Sinister Six, like, the amount of times they're robbing a bank for some reason or whatever. It's just like, it's literally uh, cops and robbers. So as far as, being a fan of fantasy and sci-fi i like stuff that's quite grounded but quite fantastical in its groundedness do you know what i'm saying does that make i don't know if it makes sense uh-huh. no that uh, makes sense. so yeah. yeah uh so yeah as i yeah just that's that's kind of my thing you know it sounds like you kind of like a human element to like a, a very realistic element yeah. to the fantasy this is, this is yeah. why like I'm a, I'm a big fan of the marvel netflix stuff like i'm just a, so, a massive fan of it because and I binged Daredevil season one and two before we did the finale of the few because there's a lot of stuff I just wanted to like immerse myself in. But yeah, that kind of grounded human. Because I guess for me, when when he starts getting too far away from like like when he start you start dealing with like other planets and little creatures and like crazy spaceships and stuff, I get I guess for me I get kind of lost because sometimes in certain films that becomes the thing that you're supposed to be attracted to. It becomes, it's almost like a gimmick. And it's like, where's the human element of it? Like, for instance, let's take Star Wars. I didn't get into Star Wars till really late. But then I had a conversation with a friend of mine once about Star Wars, and he broke down, like, the Skywalker family saga. And I was like, oh, yo, that's dope. You're (laughs) You're telling me that this guy was the chosen one, but then he went a different path. And then from his seed, they became the chosen one. And then, and I was just like, oh my god, I got to watch Star Wars. So, um, <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah, tons of family drama. Yeah, so exactly. That's, that's my human, human stuff. Right, right. 
you know, we talked a little bit about inclusion for, for men of color in, in television yep. and film. So how do you just kind of use your voice and your platform to really help start conversations about inclusion in media and kind of to change the dynamic in the UK? That's a good question. I don't think it's a conscious thing. I guess I'm lying. No, that's not true. I guess I'm lying. Um, I'm, you know what? I can't fight everybody's battles. Like, there's a lot of things going on in the world. There's a lot of things that aren't right and so on and so forth. But if something really speaks to me, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about it. And at the end of the day, I'm not trying to preach to no one. I'm just trying to just say how I feel about a certain subject or whatever. And whether it's about Black Lives Matter, whether it's about, you know, women's rights, whatever the case may be, it's like, you know, I, I, if I, if I feel a way about it, I'm going to talk about it. And I think, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to like start arguments with anybody. People can think or feel whatever they want to think or feel. But at the same time, I have that same right in the same way that like, you know, we live in a democracy and so people can vote and do whatever they want. Well, not do whatever they want to do, but they can vote how they want to vote. And then obviously there's repercussions of that. But at the same time, it's like, that's your choice. That's your choice to say what you're saying. So for my, for, for me, I want to shine a light on things that people may not necessarily realize because the amount of times I've had conversations with people and I'll say something about a subject and then people just look at me like I'm mad and I'm like, nah, they're not mad. This is, this is actually just because it's not widely known doesn't mean that I'm talking rubbish. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, so October in the UK is Black History Month. Okay. Oh, okay. Last month I was lucky enough to do like an event for Black History Month where they do like a, a walk around the area in South London and you meet famous black people from the past, actors playing those people. And I was like, and I heard about it and I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And I played the first non-white officer in the British army. And uh, in order to do that, I had to do, a, there's not much written about him because obviously a lot of, you know, history, a lot of stuff gets lost. If people don't have voices at the time, or, you know, they, they, you know, people forget about stuff. So I did a lot of research and I found out a lot of stuff that, you know, that, that a lot of black soldiers that fought for the, I'm talking about British black soldiers. I'm talking about people from the West Indies. I'm talking about people about India. Obviously, we know more in England about African American soldiers that fought in the first and second world war than we do about black British soldiers that fought in the first and second world war. So for me, I'm like, nah. That's not right. And so stuff like that, I like shine a light on it. I'm like, yo, this and this and this and this and this, because it's important for people to know that like, I, I spoke about Danton Abbey. It's like black people have been in the UK for centuries. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right. it's, it's right. not like, it's not like, oh, a windrush and then suddenly in the sixties and then suddenly black people are here. It's like, nah, we, we've been here. We've been doing stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, right. Some of the oldest black communities, yeah. like for where Sam's from in Liverpool, it's like from like, you know, the the 1500s. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like we. I mean, we've been around. We just didn't appear. I mean, one day. Yeah. So for me, using my voice, I just want. I just if I can shine a light on something, then I'll I'll do it. And especially if it's something that I believe in as a person. You know, again, it may not be for everybody, but if you're not true to yourself, then what's the point? Well, yeah, and I think that, too, by using your voice, you know, for, for causes that you really believe in, it is still helpful for other people to be able to hear 
your um, kind of take on different things. And not just you, I mean anyone, yeah, yeah, so yeah. anyone who really finds something that's like, you know, important in their life that they really want to speak to, yeah. you never know how that's going to impact someone else. And so, you know, someone else could come across your website, your Twitter feed, your, your Facebook, and really connect with something that you say. So you yeah. honestly, you know, don't know who's going to be impacted by yeah. that just by speaking your truth. Yeah, and right. I think if you speak from the heart, people can't, you know what I mean? You, you, people can't, like, be... They can't be like, oh, are you fake or whatever, whatever. It's like, well, boy, you can feel that if you want, but I'm speaking from the heart, so what I really feel, you know? So, whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, besides really being able to do your thing in the few, what other new projects are you currently working on that you are just really excited about? If you would have asked me this three weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you, but I think it's okay to say now. I just finished filming... A little, a little film with like this unknown director called Michael Bay. I think it's like, it's like Transformers last night or something. Just some little, some little tiny, tiny. Just a small, yeah, little, no big deal. You know what I mean? Independent yeah. joint. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I, yeah. So I just finished filming Transformers with, uh, with, with Michael Bay. So uh, I'm excited awesome. to see that, obviously. Yeah. That's incredible. The first Transformers is actually one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I just, combined kind of every element that i like to see in a yeah, film yeah, yeah. you know a little bit of romance a lot of heart a lot of comedy oh, yeah. and then some action yeah, so yeah. yeah i'm excited to see this next installment so congratulations yeah thank you i appreciate it, it was i was it was really um it's funny because you know i was talking about war smith it's like when you know i growing up in my teens i used to watch like bad boys on loop you know, uh, <laughs> like that used to, that gave me a personality. Yeah. You know, when I speak to, when I speak to girls, I'll be like, I try to be Mike Larry, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just, it, you know, when you realize that there was, you had a dream, but you didn't realize it was a dream because you kind of just thought about it and then you forgot about it, but it was something actually subconsciously you always wanted to do. And yeah. so I, I, when I rocked up on the first day of filming in my, my costume and stuff and, he came out of where they were filming the Michael Bay. This is, and he's looked at me and he goes, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. And I was like, yeah, cool. He doesn't speak that fast, but like, I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he was like, yeah. And he reached out his hand. He's like, I'm Michael. And I was like, how are you doing? I'm Vincent. And he's like, this is, and then obviously I got to work with him and I was like, say what you want about Michael Bay. You have your opinion. You can do whatever you want. But for me, he made bad boys. This is the guy that made Bad Boys. So, you know, you can, you, you can, you can have your opinion on, on his filmography. Also, he made, he made The Rock and Armageddon and those films are dope. Um, so yeah, and I was, so I just stood there and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm working with the guy who made Bad Boys. Like that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Like one of your favorite films of, of all time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to work with him. Yeah. That's definitely one of those moments where, you do realize that that dreams do come true. Yeah, yeah. You know, for some people, and uh, obviously, you know, a dream of yours was to work with him, uh, just because you had been following his work for so long. Yeah. So, um, it's a really awesome thing that you got to work on this this new Transformers. I, yeah. I hope it's good. I hope it's I hope it's yeah. incredible. Well, I hope yeah. I'm in. So sometimes you get cut, like Anna Paquin in X Men: Days of Future Past. So right, right. hopefully that that won't be me. I don't want to be taking my mama to see the film and be like, oh, mom, I'm in the film, and she'd be like, where where are you where are you baby where are you? Yeah. And what? then at the end, she's like, um... Yeah. <laughs> but, you know what? She's, she's good. She won't, she won't make me feel bad. She'd be like, oh, it was good. It was good. You know, she yeah. Oh, at all. Because moms are going to be supportive regardless, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, not all moms. 
I know some crazy mums, but mine and, and a few others are definitely, definitely, yeah, she's, I love my mom so much. Well, I'm thankful that I don't know any crazy moms, you know. Okay. You, as I know, no. Yeah, but, yeah. Whew, I mean, except for the ones that I see on TV, right, or on the news. Okay. Or, yeah. well, next, next time you come to the UK, I'll introduce you to some of my family. Oh. <laughs> no, okay. I'm I'm, I'm, I am playing, but I'm not playing, but, you know. Right, right, right. I mean, it's like, because I feel like most of my crazy family members, they don't have children. So, oh, okay. You know. Okay. Well, well, that's that's good. <laughs> it's a little bit different, you know, than like, yeah. oh, I, I see. I see now. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you know, in all fairness, my crazy family know they're crazy. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, you have to own it. You gotta own it. Like they'll they they know they're bitten up, so it's all good. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. So okay, so we did talk just a little bit about your love of Netflix, uh, Marvel work yeah. currently, and your you know kind of your your love of the Flash. So yeah. just name a couple and and Bad Boys. All things Will Smith, really. So just yeah. something that's out currently. Like, what are some of your favorite, I guess, films and music, maybe, that's out now? You know what? I've been, I've been really bad this year. I haven't watched as, as many films as I would have liked. Yeah, I haven't either. I know this came out for you guys in, like, November last year, but we got it in January. And I watched Creed. I'm like, Ryan Coogler, man. That, like, if I ever, if I ever, like, if I ever worked with Christopher Nolan or Ryan Coogler, I know I'm a good actor. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Christopher Nolan's one of my favorites, and and Ryan Coogler as well. Yeah. So I mean, Ryan Coogler, I can't wait to see Black Panther. Obviously, oh, yeah, I'm just like I'm nervous because I'm just like this is like a mess because all his films are really intimate. Well, both, yeah. both films, I'm sorry, are really intimate, and so I'm just a bit like I'm sure he could do it. Don't get me wrong, but like I'm just like oh, what's like I'm what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? But yeah, as I said, like if like for me, if I work with Ryan Coogler or Christopher Nolan, then I know I'm a good actor because he does not work with rubbish actors so yeah creed and oh man i love creed and i i bored like a like a child like literally that that film that <laughs> film uh you know when oh that film just like just uppercut i think i think everyone balled i mean you have to if you didn't then i'm confused because it was yeah. an incredible film and it was heartbreaking but also heartwarming i mean it was just yeah, like just, oh, yeah. just everything just everything um another film i really liked actually again another human film with 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 my man ben foster Hello, High Water. Oh, I didn't see that. David McKenzie. It's with Jeff Bridges, Ben Foster, and Chris Pine. And I saw it in the, a few months ago when it came out here in the UK with a Q&A with Chris Pine and the director. And it's a Western, and I'm not a big fan of Westerns, but it's just it's just so human. You know what I mean? It's just like really, it's a really, really beautiful film and the performances are just so good like they're so earnest and just you really feel them and uh yeah so as far as, far as movies those are my two movies of the year so far music i'm really you know what i'm really bad i'm really bad because i'm a hip-hop head like straight up like you know i'm, a, I'm, I'm you know so with i'm not really i'm not really following a lot of, of new stuff like don't get me wrong i like i like my, my dudes are like Kendrick and J. Cole, but obviously everybody says that, you know what I mean? And, and I know I'm not being original by saying that, but, I'm, you know, those those cats got something to say. But, like, since Luke Cage came out, I've been listening to a lot of, like, The soundtrack. Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of 90s hip-hop. I've been listening to Wu-Tang like you would not believe. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I'm really, I'm really, uh, I'm really bad uh, when it comes to that, because I, I, if new music ain't, I'm not really feeling it, and I'm not trying to this no mumble rappers but you know i'm not a mumble rap dude you know what i mean mm -hmm. so i kind of i sometimes i jump out 
uh, and, and just go back to old stuff. But I'll tell you something for nothing. When Prince died, I was in rehearsals and they, they literally dropped that news and I was like, well, how am I supposed to go back to work? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, when Prince died, I jumped into his back catalogue like crazy. But then, it, then, I, then I started listening to other stuff. Like I listened to a lot of, because obviously Prince is influenced by a lot of cats. So I listened to a lot of like James Brown and then, then I kind of jumped forward and I, I, I didn't listen to it when it came out. But D'Angelo's last album, D'Angelo and the Vanguard, Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. That's a mar- that's really good. Like I and I don't care. Like people can come at me if they want to say something. They know they can catch me on social media. I don't care. But for me, that album is as good as Purple Rain. Oh wow! So <laughs> like the end. Oh my goodness! That, that's I'm, so good. Oh, don't get me started. It is a good album. It is a good album. Yeah. <laughs> I am still hurting. Oh yeah. But it. I mean, D'Angelo is a good. I personally, with music, it's tough for me. I tend to only listen to 90s R&B, but I do, I do love, loved, loved, loved Prince. I think he might have been my spirit animal. And then just in terms of, I mean, D'Angelo's album was good. D'Angelo, actually, all of his albums are really good. And I think that people don't really give him the type of credit that he deserves because he's actually phenomenal. He is. I'm not a massive fan of voodoo. Oh my gosh, I loved Voodoo. I do like it, but I'm not a massive fan. But like Brown Sugar, like, like I could listen to that like any day, any time. Like I just, oh my, ah, da da da, ah, gonna listen to it after this interview. <laughs> well, I mean, it's always a good choice. It, it is a fantastic album, yeah, for sure. Okay, so just to wrap up, you know, when this is all said and done, yeah, what do you hope people really remember you for? Ooh, okay. <laughs> I just, I just really want people to. Uh, what, what are we talk about here, like professionally or what, like because you know I want to be. I, I mean, I I think professionally and personally, you know, uh, I think they don't have to be separate. They could be mutually exclusive. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me try and try and mix the two then. Um. Okay. So I just want to be remembered as someone who 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 truly loved what he did, and um really kind of made choices that you know that i you know that he believed in if we talk about me not being me you know um but yeah just someone someone who you know as as an eclectic cv but also just that does work that people can appreciate in a sense that they can like it's fun or it's moving or whatever and you know on on a more personal level like i i mentioned my nephews before i have nieces i have a couple of young sisters as well you know, I, I it means a lot to me that they can be proud of me. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I spoke to my sister a few weeks ago and uh she she was like around my dad's house with my younger sisters and, and uh she they were like, Oh I didn't know Vincent did films. Oh my god, blah 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 and then like my, my little sisters who I ain't seen a little bit actually, uh they you know, they were looking me up on YouTube and stuff and they were watching watching like short films and like trailers for stuff that I'd been in and uh I used to do this I used to be in this sketch group called the Sketch Bank. And so we did a lot of like sketch comedy and stuff so they were watching that and that was you know, it was it was it was nice because it's like, yeah, like yeah, like it's it's nice to like when I was growing up, acting was never a thing that you did. You know what I'm saying? I didn't come from a place of actors. Like the only artistic person in my family was my uncle, who's a singer, and my cousin, who was like ten days older than me. Me and him were like brothers, and we and we we would draw together. We we are visually like artistic. So being an actor was never 
you know, my mum was a nurse and my dad, my dad drives the buses, do you know what I'm saying? So right, right. it was never a thing. And just knowing that actually you can, especially now, you can just do whatever you want. Like you can, if you want something, you can, you can do it, you can get it. And I think just to wrap up, you spoke about the difference between America and the UK when we talk about industries and stuff. And I find that more and more people in the UK are adopting a more American way of looking at things because in America, you guys have the American dream where you could be anybody. And I think after the last few days, you realize anybody could be the president of the United States. So anyone, 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 but at the same time, it's like, you know, you can, that that's obviously in that context, it's very, very scary. But right. to know that you can, you can like, look at all the rappers, look at like every, like, you know, they are the American dream, like come from nothing and be something, you know what I mean? And it's just like, in England, it's very much about, the reason why we keep having stuff about aristocracy and the Queen and all the rest of that is because it's very much ingrained where you just know your place, you know, you, you play your position, you have your station. And I think sometimes that can be quite detrimental to people wanting to strive for more. And I think I find more and more people are adopting a more American way of looking at things where it's just like, I can do it. I'm just going to go out and do it. Like, ain't nothing stopping me. And it's more of an empowering thing where it's actually like the sky's the limit. Do you know what I mean? Like, so... uh, Yeah, absolutely. The sky is the limit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that I can do that, have that give that feeling to you know my my younger relatives and people that don't know me as well like people you know it's nice when you people you don't know you connect with online and they they kind of oh keep up the good work and all this stuff it's like okay cool man like i don't know you but that's that's nice dude thank you you know yeah awesome that's incredible i mean i think that ultimately we all just kind of strive to be the best version of ourselves and and hopefully inspire some other people to realize that they can literally do anything yeah yeah and, and even if, uh, obviously, hard work is never not an option whenever you're pursuing any of your dreams, but that they see that hard work really does pay off and, and timing really is everything. Yeah. So just give us your social media um, shout outs and handles. You know, where can people find you on the Internet? You can find me on Facebook, which is obviously Facebook.com forward slash Vincent Jerome. I think actor. I don't know. I just I just I just log on. It's there. Um, Twitter is at I underscore vincent jerome and instagram is at vincent underscore jerome so uh yeah that's everything okay perfect thank you again so much for doing this interview it's been a pleasure thank you very much for having me on i'm gonna let you get on with the rest of your day thanks have a great day too. you too Catch you later. bye bye in our final segment jacqueline joy and leo discussed the 2016 film moonlight It's a drama film written and directed by Barry Jenkins, with a story by Terrell Alvin McCraney and stars Trevante Rhodes, Andre Holland, Janelle Monae, Ashton Sanders, Gerald Jerome, Naomi Harris, and Mahershala Ali. The film had its world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival on October 2nd of this year. It has received widespread acclaim and has grossed over $3 I'm Jacqueline, and I'm here with Miss Joy and Mr. Leo, and we're here to talk about the film Moonlight, which is, I mean, 
we're doing it because this film is just absolutely amazing. So this is the film from Barry Jenkins, and we've all seen it. And let's chat about it. So how you guys doing? Good. How are you? Yeah. Good. Chilling. Awesome. <laughs> Chilling. <laughs> so I saw the film at TIFF, which I thought was very, I was blessed for that one. Right on. But I was happy that it was on one of my films I was excited about um, because I saw the trailer. The trailer came out just a little bit before I got to TIFF. And I didn't know anything really kind of going into it. And then like the week before TIFF, everyone that went to Telluride said how awesome it was. So that's what I knew going into the film. What did y'all know before you saw it? I actually didn't watch the trailer. This year in particular, um, as Jacqueline, you already know, we were kind of preparing for TIFF and whatnot. I didn't end up going, but we were we were talking about it. But there was a list of black films that I wanted to see that weren't quote unquote like mainstream films, more indie films that I was able to see throughout the year. I saw the fits at a random art studio house at a, in New York. I never got to see kicks, but I'm going to buy the DVD to watch it. And Moonlight was another one of those black indie films that I had an interest in seeing this year. Some of my friends were like, yeah, it looks like a good movie. I never watched any of the trailers. So I just wanted to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely was surprised and we'll go more into it, but I, it was a wonderful experience. They had a early release for New York and LA. So I saw earlier than the wide release that it received. Um, and I enjoyed it overall. Yeah, just, just to comment on the trailer, um, you know, I, the trailer is like one of those like important things where it doesn't give you, it doesn't really give you like contextual information. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's actually, I think the trailer is very similar to the film. Uh, like the only trailer in recent memory, it has a kind of Terrence Malick thing overall in the trailer. But the trailer that I wrote that I that I most compare it to is I don't know if you guys have seen Before Nightfalls with Javier Bardem, which was like yeah the, yeah with the biopic about Reynaldo Arenas, the Cuban poet. Yeah. That trailer was was similarly it was like it had like this like sound and fury, but it was silent. There were like no words shared. You couldn't hear anybody speaking. And you were just like, I don't know what this is, but this is probably going to be damn special. Like, you just get yeah. that feeling, you know? Like, that whole, I mean, the imagery in it with look. I was just like, that was so much. And that was just a look, right? Yeah, and I didn't yeah. know what that look meant. <laughs> but I knew that that look was important. And I was like, I want to know what's about that look. So let's talk about the film. So it's a Barry Jenkins. This is his sophomore film. It was eight years in between this and his first film. And he cast Naomi Harris. Marshall Alley, Janelle Monet, and these three newcomers to play the central character, Sharon. And, you know, I mean, I don't know, man. I, I, first of all, when I was sitting through the film, I was really like excited about the way the casting worked out because I was a little skeptical about Joelle Monet and she killed it to me. She, I was really. Do you know, you know what's weird? When I saw it in the theater, like in the previews to that, I think were two other Janelle Monet movies. So it's yeah. like, oh, it's just started. Now this is like her little jump off, but it's like you're going to see I a lot more of her. Yeah. <laughs> Janelle Monet and Mahersha Ali in particular, they're having good. 2016. <laughs> They're like uh, the only ones. Very <laughs> good 2016 in terms of films. Because, you know, obviously Janelle's in this film, she'll be in Hidden Figures that comes out around Christmas time. Yep. Mahershala was in Kicks, which is one of the black indie films I mentioned before. This, obviously, he was on Luke Cage. They're just having good years, man. And they yeah. both did very well. I was pleasantly surprised by Janelle Monet and how. Any of you who have ever seen uh, Janelle Monet live or like even seen her on any type of video of her performing, she's just a ball of manic energy in a good way. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the way she was very toned down in this film, I was 
surprisingly impressed, so it made me even more excited about seeing Hidden Figures. I was going to see it anyway, but I was even more excited to see it. Yeah, no, and mm, we could talk about Hidden Figures. We're about to drop a video about that because we got to see clips from it in TIFF, but... Yeah, she surprised me because there's just not a lot of characters in the film, first of all. Mm -hmm. Um, You have the three characters that are playing Sharon, and then you basically have these three other characters, and that's kind of really it. I mean, four, you know, um, and that's including um, Andre Holland's character through all three parts of his life as well. So it's very strange to think that, you know, she had such a big part in the film and did so well because, yeah, I've seen her as a musician, she confessed to us when we were at TIFF, she's actually a classically trained actress, and that's what she started off with. She switched oh, really? to music. Yeah, I was totally shocked by that. And But it oh. shows, right? You can't walk yeah. on to your first movie and kill it like this without acting classes and, like, knowing what to do. At least she's not, like, common. This could have been way worse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was gonna, I was, I was gonna say like, you know, this wasn't like uh, Macy Gray's pop up in Training Day, where it's like, give her a couple lines, let her do her thing, she's popular now. Okay, let's get her out of here. You know, this is not. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought it was gonna be. Yeah. Same. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all did, but she, she did a wonderful job. I mean, and even though I love Janelle, but the other actors and actresses as well, man, Naomi Harris, I was not expecting that performance <laughs> at all. I just wasn't expecting it because the usual Naomi Harris roles that I've seen is a lot less like evil, like a lot less uh, 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 crazy. And so mm-hmm. to see her in this completely different like headspace was really enjoyable to see. And then also like the the young actors. I think I read that the young actors who played and I'm blanking on the main character's name. Sharon. What is Sharon? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the the three actors who play Sharon. They weren't allowed to communicate with each other. I oh. read, I think. They weren't actually, it wasn't like they could see each other do what they were doing, and they were just kind of acting without any knowledge of what the other two actors were doing. And with that, like, it still worked wonderfully overall. Like, all of the actors did an amazing job playing the same character. Mm-hmm. That has to be very Jenkins, though, because there's mannerisms in each one of those characters that I, like, pointed out. I was like, oh, he's doing that same, like, head turn and, like, the same, way that he yeah. looks at people. That they is... have the same exact eyes. When they, yes. like, show certain expression in the eyes in all three acts, I was like, my God, <laughs> it's the same person. Or the way, or the way they, eat, they eat dinner. Yeah, you know, like yeah, oh like God. they align that. They align that really meaningfully. And it, it's so two things I, I definitely want to talk about. Um, one is one is the mom, which I want to talk about second because I feel like there's a lot to say about that character, and also in terms of how critics are, are viewing that character. The other thing was like what you were talking about about Janelle Monae's presence in that, like she wasn't this ball of manic energy in the role. And I think that overall the the film, you know, if there there are many single words you could use to describe it, I would say restraint is like a big one. The film is very restrained, very like. It's almost like it starts off focusing on, on you know, the, the, the child version of Sharon Little. And, like, Little has this, you know, there's, like, this, like, solemn gravity to him, to everything he does, to everything he is, to his silence. And it's almost like, sometimes I feel like there are parts in the movie where everybody else is drawn into that gravity, into that magnetic force of this character, who is, like, so so silent and, and miserable, but, like, passionate, but, like, restrained. And so everybody's kind of restrained. Everybody's kind of withheld. This is like a movie, obviously, that the the script is very lean. This is not like a, a, a word, a text-heavy film. It's almost like about these meaningful gazes, like the ones revealed in the trailer. So uh, yeah, I feel like I feel like I haven't really seen uh, 
I haven't really seen a film with this much of a screen in, in a minute. And maybe I don't pursue those types of movies, but the way that this one works where everything is so rich but so quiet was really interesting. Yeah, being the indie film girl junkie that I am, I will admit that these types of films I, I gravitate for. But even in the indie world, I will admit it's hard to make what I would consider a non-narrative film. And when the mince, when I mean when I say that, not a lot happens. There's not a rising arc the way you feel like, you know, right. you meet something, contract, resolution, right? Right. So there's not that. But it is very compelling as far as the story that is told. And one thing I will say, we could talk about Naomi Harris. First of all, homegirl filmed this in three days in between a press junket. Can we just (laughs) please understand that she came with it? And and I know you're going to talk about, you know, her character because she didn't want to take the role. Mm -hmm. Like she had to get convinced by Barry Jenkins to take the role because quite astutely she said like look we've seen the crack addict mom like it's been there done that I don't really feel the need to do this it's just not what I want to do and to her brilliance and to the script's brilliance they took that very at this point you know cut and dry archetype and you know stereotype and they just to me, that seemed so fresh. And I've seen all those other ones, the abusive mothers of, you know, Mr. Mm-hmm. and Pete, Precious, you know, they go on and on. It's just so fresh in this one. Like, the empathy and the, like, danger in her are both so real. Well, if you think about it, a lot of the, the general stereotypes that this film kind of confronts, they kind of flip on side their head because Marisol yep. Ali's character is a drug dealer, but he's an empathetic drug dealer. He's a moralistic, drug yeah. Sympathetic, yeah. 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 So the fact that you even have that stereotype of a drug dealer taking a young boy under his wing and he actually cares for him and, like, actually respects his, his girlfriend and they have an understanding of what he does, but the girlfriend is, you know, someone who cares about Chiron, you know, Chiron even after... Is a spoiler? Can we say? Yeah, spoilers? no. I think I think oh, spoiler yeah. light is lit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Even after even after Mahershala's character dies, uh, she, do you love the way they did that? that yeah. They didn't even call it out. Yeah. They just said, "I haven't seen you since the funeral," and you're like, "Oh, love that." Yeah, like you know, it, it's interesting because, yeah, like Ali's character. I mean, you know, the obvious uh, the the strings to be connected are that one. I mean, he's a, he's a sham. He's a hypocrite. He is like he is part of the like reason that that Sharon's mother mother is poisoned, but he is presented as like I mean he's somebody who has this like this married home life that's like utterly divorced from like what's happening on the corners or in the trap. Like it's just a separate world. So he is kind of bullshit, and yet he's he is this like super important educational presence in Sharon's life. The dinner scene in Act One. One of my favorite scenes in a movie of this year. And, like, the theater that I was in was just, like, stone silent, like, during that during that period. And, like, so much is told about this, about Ali's character, who you don't get a ton of, really. You just get a, you just get a bit of him. You get a bit of, like, the, the kind of, the kind of making of his fabric. That's part of what the, like, the film is, is that, like, people are, you know, the, the characters are imperfect. And critics, I think, have levied some, you know, accusations on that with Naomi Harris's mom, with the archetype that you're talking about. At the same time, I actually found her character very sympathetic. I found her, like, angry and confused and beset, but, like, also, you know, she's a single mom, like, trying to do what she's trying to do. How often do you get a a character who is, like, the crackhead stereotype that finds some type of healing from that? And Mm -hmm. Act 3, she does go and end up 
in rehab and she's trying to do better for herself, how often do we see that type of closing to her her story? <laughs> Visited yeah. by her dealer son, of course. Yeah, to... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to... Who's having none of it? Who mm-hmm. doesn't care? Mm-hmm. And I mean, okay, let me go ahead and 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 speak my hook'em horns again. I try to put it on everything that I love. Austin, Texas, Trevante Rhodes, UT alum, bringing it in the final act <laughs> oh, as Sharon playing his new transformation. Because I mean, we haven't really illustrated it, I think, carefully, but Sharon is almost like a different person in each act of the film. And they all kind of tell who he eventually becomes, which is, you know, this very rough gangster from a boy that started out getting beat in the back of the schoolhouse for being soft. And, and that's what he becomes, you know? And so it's very strange to see that, but each character built that transformation. And I love that the film structured itself in those three acts and they were so separate, yet so part of the same story. But the media, you were talking about uh, Naomi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about yeah. this film being reviewed <laughs> and talked about. Listen, I'm, and this just goes back to somebody who's a, a, a black woman, even though I am heterosexual. Listen, as somebody who deals with intersectionality all of my life, it is super imperative that if you don't understand intersectionality, don't write an article about a movie that literally the core of it is intersectionality. Don't or acknowledge your ignorance. There is yes. a huge thing for acknowledging your ignorance in, in criticism. Like, it's okay to be like, I don't necessarily get this, but I can see how it's powerful. Or there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. yeah. Performances on how yeah. powerful they were, and has nothing to do with the, the focus of the film is about a boy who, and a lot of people are saying that it's a story about being black and gay, which I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think mm-hmm. it's I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. But go ahead. I don't think so because, like, one, he never characterizes himself as such, and if you are within the queer spectrum, like, you're, it's perfectly okay for you to to classify yourself as however you see fit that that matters. But he never identifies himself as such. Um, he's more like on the questioning or queer spectrum overall. So calling it just like a black gay film isn't really accurate. That's 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 too reductive. I totally no, I totally agree. What I loved about it, it's a coming of age story and a complete like a man becoming something that you wouldn't expect, but it's also a love story. That was the part of the movie that just killed me. Was that we, I didn't realize until the third act. It's like oh this is this is just a beautiful love story. It's about a man it, becoming who he is, but it's really about love and his yeah. love of Kevin. And that was, ugh, I don't know, man. It, it moved me so much. Carrying on to your point about, like, is the film about homosexuality? I mean, invariably it is. But it's also, maybe even more importantly, just about, like, a black man who wants love. Like, he doesn't know yeah. what that love is. He's not like, it's not like he lusted after Ali when he was a kid or he looked at the men in his school with, like, longing. Like, that's not there. That's not in the movie. It's just that he wants love. He doesn't even, like, know or care to classify what that is. He did think he recognized it, and he recognized it in the form of someone who would end up being his aggressor, which is, like, the tragedy of it. I, like, I almost feel like that's beyond discrete labeling like it's kind of unnecessary you can call it that because it has like you know depictions of uh sexual connection between two male characters but that doesn't have to be like the the last word on the film or or what the film's trying to say or communicate like if this i agree 
Yeah, if this was, if you just took the parallels differently, if this was a heterosexual story and it was two people that weren't supposed to fall in love and they had the mean girls moment in the hall, yeah. this is like the gangster version of that. I hate to make it so whatever, but I mean, like, seriously, like, yeah. it's so simplistic, but when you turn, because that is, that is, to me, accurate of how those things go down. They're not talked about. They're not going to be explicitly stated, but they are going to have the same, you know, results in a lot of ways, you know. But I think it goes back to your original point about this film overall is very restrained because it could have been so easy to make it like a message type of movie. Right. And so simple in how it just depicts, to your point, Leo, someone who's just trying to find love. And unfortunately, he found love in the wrong place in Act 2 with somebody who was an aggressor to him and he felt so heartbroken from it. But in Act 3, multiple years separated from each other they're able to like rekindle that love again now that they're older and wiser and they're trying to find themselves. And so, and Andre Holland's character pretty much being like, this ain't you, man. Like, I know you, this is not who you are. That's the, that is so, that's like really, I mean, that's like essentially that is love, like being able to like penetrate like someone's armor or someone's illusion. Um, and yeah, like that, you know, I mean, that leads me to question like, so is it that cut and dry? Like did Andre Holland's character call him because he just was in love with him? I, I almost felt like, you know, they're so cagey with each other in Act 3. Like, you know, they first yeah. kind of encounter each other. There's all right. this... They're kind of, like, pacing around and, like, you know, uh, 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 metaphorically speaking. And it's like, I I started to think, like, is he... Is is Andre Holland's character, like, looking for, for a sexual connection or looking for a romantic connection? Or is he just, like, does he feel, like, lost and different and so changed in life that he's like, I just want, like, a piece of, like, the old real part of me. And so that's why I called you. Like, I don't really know. And the and the, the kind of, you know, mysterious way that the film ends with, like, with what seems to be a romantic resolution, but again is restrained and again is not explicitly stated or depicted. Yeah, like, like makes me... Makes me really wonder on that. I tried to read, I read the whole third act, or that whole portion of the third act, as something romantic, because I don't think I could help myself. Like, I wanted a romantic resolution, but I'm like, maybe, maybe it, maybe it wasn't even like, or maybe Andre Holland's character didn't do that deliberately. Maybe that wasn't part of his design. Well, see, this is where I would argue back, just because you don't get a happy ending doesn't mean it wasn't a love story, to me. Right, right. I, yeah. And love is not always on the sense of romantic. They could have been yes. a more friendship or healing love. Like, I always thought that Andre Holland's character calling Chiron in was him trying to find some type of redemption. He just came back from prison. Not He came back from prison a little longer than Trevante's uh, character, Chiron, did. He's working as a cook. He now has a kid. He was separated from the kid for a while. I think it's a lot of him trying to grow up and, and own up and, and man up into responsibility I think it was him trying to find some redemption, but even the last scene, I, I, I kind of viewed it as romantic, but then I had to like circle back and think about it when I got home. Cause this, this film made me think and cry in multiple, in multiple times. Wow. It made me, yeah, it made me sit and wonder. It was like, that's more of an embrace. I would give like one of my best friends who's a woman and I don't have any romantic or sexual feelings towards them, but that was an embrace that I, I could recognize when I, a friend of mine is feeling hurt. So is it even challenging us saying like, well, because it's two men embracing in this way, it must be something romantic or like I felt like it was in a way challenged to see what does the audience think and what is their perception of that type of, of, of bond or like closeness. Right. I mean, that's true. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to 
keep my, I read too many romance novels. I was like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I'm... They're going to be happy. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm driven to that, but, like, I, yeah, like, I don't know if that's me. <laughs> I don't know if that's just no, me bringing my stuff to it. This is the deal. I know that that is my outlook on life, because, again, I read too many romance novels, right. and I know that I will find the joy and the love and everything, but I do recognize that it was left ambiguous, and I like the way that all three of us can see this film and see that final moment in a different way. And that just shows you the flipping brilliance of this movie. And again, you know, it's a movie where I kind of forget who made the quote, but somebody, some stupid newspaper was like, you know, this is a film about a young black gay kid from the ghetto and why you can relate to it too. And I'm just like, okay, y'all come he on. Said, they, they, it, the, the quote was like poor black and gay. Yeah. Right. Which, yeah. The part that upset me the most about that was the poor part. Because <laughs> yeah. I, was like, yeah. I was sitting here like, but the poor wasn't really focused in the film. Like, where did y'all get that from? What? Like, okay. <laughs> like, I was and very confused. The beauty of this film is the fact that it is the story of who these people are and where they're related to, but the story is told so beautifully that you don't need to say that everyone relates to it. That's the beauty of the story is it doesn't, it doesn't feel that preachy. And for you to put this stupid title like that on a review on top of it literally to me defeats the purpose. Like if that purpose of that film was to laud the movie or make people go see it, I mean, I think you just missed a big point of it. Like, it and again, just... all of those three things that they mentioned in that article, poor, blank, and gay, none of those things were really the focus of the film. Yeah. I, I agree with you guys that it's it's really more of a, just a general love story. Yes, he's black, and we can identify with the blackness because we're black, and so we were viewing it as such. So it's very clear that the boy is black. The name of the movie is based off of in, uh, what was it, in Moonlight, Black Boys Turn Blue. Like Blue, yeah. yeah. yeah it's definitely based on blackness, but they're because it's an all-black cast, the way that they're acting and the story that they're telling, it's, like, secondary. We view, we can visualize, and we see it, obviously, but that's secondary. Even the, the gay and the queerness is kind of secondary to the story to yeah. me, in a way, because it's more about a love story. The poorness, I don't know where they came from with that. That really came, they reached from the stars for that, because... <laughs> I mean, I it wasn't explicit. I mean, it really it wasn't. Was not, out of all three yeah. of those, it was the least explicit on the poorness. But yeah. maybe because of how the housing styles were, or maybe in that nature, like they thought automatically it's poor because his mama was a crackhead, that they thought, it, oh, he has to be poor. Like it was just a lot of assumptions to a lot of the articles. And it's very clear that these people are one, not black, two, not intersectional in any way, shape, or form, or three, don't know what the hell they're talking about. So I would advise you to either A, sit this one out. There's plenty of other. Topics that you write on, you might just wanna, you might, you just wanna, you well, wanna pass this so, out. So I will just tell you, this is an actual article that I'm working through right now because I push back on that because I have gotten a little bit deeper into film criticism and I feel that a lot of people do one of two things when it comes to films like this and Birth of a Nation and other, you know, films of a certain ilk, right? They either just with white guilt and stupidity, laud what is not great <laughs> and make right. it into more than what it is. They take a hard pass and they don't learn anything from it. Or they get somewhere in the middle where they make the review and either sometimes they actually make brilliant reviews. Because I've read a ton of reviews about this film and some of them are beautiful and thought out and come to points and conclusions that I would have never thought of. And these are by white cis men. And some of them are not so much. But I don't think telling them to take a hard pass is what we should do. I think what it is is that 
they need to do a little bit more research than let me just sit down at my computer and write the first thing that comes into my head when you look at these types of films. Because I do that when I'm looking at a film that's outside of my, like, like this ain't me. You know what I mean? Like, if this is something I don't really know about, I do a little research and try to figure out a little bit more about the film than what, you know, just beats out of my head. And I think that is where it is. It comes from an arrogance of critics to think that they just know. Right, or, or a value well, even... a value in that first opinion, yeah. in that hot take. Yes, yes exactly. Right. Yes, right. that is exactly right. And but... even, even the arrogance of the writer, but it's the arrogance of the writer that's wrapped in a certain amount of privilege that you, oh, as yeah. a writer, for example, wouldn't experience. As people of color, and especially like black women, you you know, you and I, Jacqueline, we probably would, if it's an article or something I don't know, I'm usually one that'd be like, you know what, I'm not trying to look stupid. Thank whack. you. Yeah. Their pass on it, or let me yeah. do some serious research and then give you a draft. And if you think as the editor, mm, this is not gonna work, you know what? I'll take the L. I'll write something else. But that's just yeah. my thing. I like to be respectful in general to people's topics but, that but, I don't know. But here's the thought: Don't you also think that um, that black women, especially black women critics, have a lot more to lose by fucking it up the first time? That's also very true. Because <laughs> I'll admit, I am like, I am like the, um, I am like the safety girl right. of reviews at this point. Like, I am very rarely take a very like hard take. Because, <laughs> it's because God forgives, but Twitter doesn't. So you know, <laughs> exactly I mean, the exactly. one film where I just laid it out, and I was not near as harsh as I could have been was the Killing Joke. I was like. Forget this, because I walked out of that theater so through. I well, was, that one, you actually, you could have sunk your teeth into it, because you would have had just really, like, white fan bros being mad, but everybody else was on the same page with you, like, girl, this is terrible. This is the deal. <laughs> this is the deal. I would say I, I hit it hard, but I didn't beat it down like it should have been, and I still had them coming at me. I still had people coming at me, so that just goes to show you, and it doesn't, it doesn't make me scared. It makes me try to be as objective as possible, because this is the other thing I will say. I'm glad Moonlight is having its moment. Because I will talk about how I feel about Moonlight Birth, like to wrap things up, because I have this whole like opinion about it. Mm. But yeah. I don't want to just comment on black films. I want to comment on Bollywood films. I want to comment on Asian films. I just saw The Handmaiden, and I don't excellent. know about the Korean Japanese invasion. And I was getting ready to write down about this film, and I'm like, let me let me read up. Oh, on I, it. yeah, I could give you a lot of notes on that, yeah. <laughs> especially I mean, Korea. Seriously though, yeah. but, but, like that for example is is something that differentiates certain critics. I knew that I did not know about, you know, the Japanese and Korean history. And so before I'm going to write this film, that although it is just a film, it has a lot to do with that, I should probably, you know, check out a Wikipedia entry at least. Like, let's do a little bit of research here, you know? But <laughs> I don't think a lot of people do that. I think they just go in with, like, this is what I think, and it's it comes off very ignorant. And that's We'll get there, but man, some people, what would help them? <laughs> I, I, I want to mention just one last theme about the film and how, how you guys may have, may have looked at it. I guess a the theme that I'm not seeing pop up in a lot of places is that a lot of the film, you could say, is also about that young black boys need role models. Young black boys need black men in their life who give them some form. It doesn't have to be fatherhood, even. It doesn't have to be like a direct parent. It can just be like some kind of guidance. Because a lot of Sharon's journey, I feel like, you know, echoes and honors uh, Ali's presence in his life from the point when he baptizes him, whatever you want to call it, uh, which is like, I mean, just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous scene. Another scene that like drew silence from the theater. It was absolutely beautiful. You know, this is like 
he now has this frame to be aware of, to learn from, to aspire to. Did it help him and hurt him in his life? It did. It did both, I guess. There are some people who might say, well, you know, being a successful drug dealer is probably not like the great... Okay, maybe not. But at the same time, it didn't look like he was... Uh, he was necessarily a violent predator um, or that he, you know, he, he went through a rough patch of juvie and then like emerged in, in this kind of makeup that relates to he this He made the best life. out of his situation. Let's exactly. be honest. Exactly. exactly. He, did what, he did what he could. So, I mean, that's, I, I think, a, a really powerful, uh, you know, message, expressed message in the movie. It's that, you know, they need them. They need like black men to speak to them and to honor them so that they can be honored. I got that from the movie because it's like, yeah, like when Ali, you know, perishes like off screen, he, he haunts the rest of the movie all the same. Yes. Yeah, there's a big theme of male kinship, friendship, mentorship in mm-hmm. the film mm-hmm. more than more than I would have originally thought, which, yeah. yeah, that's a very good point, Leo. Joy, you got anything? I kind of viewed it more as uh, more of black boys need figures, period, because I feel yeah. like a lot of what... Chiron was missing in terms of his mother and her issues. He was getting more in an abundance from Janelle Monet's character. And yeah. how even after Mahershala Ali's character passed away, she did like, it wasn't just like, Oh, this little boy that my, my husband or my boyfriend just brought along. She really formed a bond with Chiron and oftentimes gave him the home and, and the solace that he needed when his mother, you know, even when Mahershala's character wasn't there and when his mother wasn't there. And so yeah. I, I saw it more of no matter what gender, or like what guidance or parent that there needs to be around, uh, just a young black boy needs love, period. Yeah, yeah, we all need love. And like, you're right. I mean, it goes back to the thing. It's, it's the love story. The one thing I will say is Moonlight is getting some of the heat that it so richly deserves. Because I walked out of TIFF. And if you ever go to a film festival, you see a lot of films. Some of them become a blur after a while. But I walked out of that film and I said, it ain't going to win the Oscar, but it damn well should. Because that was the best film I've seen of 2016. And I see a lot of movies. La La Land is going to win because it's the big Hollywood movie that Hollywood loves. They're going to vote for it because it's pretty and it is. And it's a great film. But this film, for as small as it was, and with the... The parts he had to work with, a limited budget, new actors, you know, a very short uh, filming schedule. The fact that they made this film is great. And then I look at, unfortunately, you know, Birth of a Nation, the reason why people lauded it in Sundance is because, you know, everybody was feeling white guilt on Oscar So White. I've said it before, and it's my (laughs) firm opinion. That film is mediocre at best. The reason why I'm like, we need more black film critics. We need more people of color to have voices because I ain't scared to say that movie was mediocre. And that's before we found out Nate Parker was a bastard. You know right, what I'm saying? Like, right. as a white journalist, you maybe don't feel that comfortable saying that. And I don't blame them because, you know what? It's probably true that they don't have necessarily perspective. But this film is getting the heat that it deserves. And the best part about it is I love the reviews where black and gay is not a part of it it's just a beautiful movie that just happens to be black and have gay characters and that's yep. I just i flip and love it and i hope to god it wins the oscar I'll be that would be night. something even i don't know i mean after after last year after oscar's so white like they might just give it a gimme <laughs> you know, I, I, I was thinking that too i was like they got new people in the academy yeah it, i I think it has a better shot this year than it would have ever if it came out last year. Yeah, I also do think that it's getting a lot of praise universally. It's making 
really good money considering it's an indie yeah. film and it's, yeah. it's it made a movies. shitload on right. small release like one of the biggest yeah. i think small release successes of the year yeah. and a lot of people including white folk really love this movie additionally yeah. if it doesn't if it doesn't get a nomination for any like picture or actor it should at least get it for lighting because my god yeah. <laughs> this film yeah. i'm sure it's like it, yeah. just the way the the how it was filmed the Cinematic choices that Jenkins asked folks to do, or how he directed it, and music and, choices too. Music, the sound, and the, music, and like the yeah, no, all of it. Yeah, I would say out of all of like the black quote unquote indie films that are coming out this year, I think Moonlight should get a nod. Breath of the Nation probably still might get a nod, regardless. I don't know, but it might. But Moonlight should definitely get one. And then Fences, I haven't seen it yet, but a lot of people are like, yeah, you need to start engraving Viola. I mean, and, it's it's and bringing in Viola, who let's just, she brings yeah. the action <laughs> back with her and the receipt, baby. Viola, if, because Viola, off the, off the rip, I'm like, engrave her Oscar, get it ready, because it's hers. <laughs> but, uh, but I think those are the three films that will get the look for next year's Oscars. I think those are the three black films that we'll see up like there. And I do think like Jenkins, I think Andre Holland might get the nom for actor. He wasn't, he wasn't in there long enough, but man, I really enjoyed his performance. He, he was so. in the, he was in the theater when I saw it. I saw it with uh, Rebecca and some of them in, in at, uh, not in Harlem at Lincoln square. And he was like in the oh. theater. He was so shy. Like after the show, a bunch of people kind of rushed him and he was like, Oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, cool. I stalked Naomi Harris at TIFF, and I was just like, I don't want to take a picture with you because you're too damn pretty to be in a picture with me. But I gotta have a picture with you. I was oh, so man. in love with her. I was like, I knew, uh, I knew, I knew Andre Holland was gonna be a star. I got to see him at MLK now when they were doing and reading quotes from various, you know, famous black activists, and he did Malcolm X. And I'm like, so are we just gonna have a Malcolm X movie with him in it? Because he, didn't do it. Because he the way he did it and his cadence, and he took it so seriously that I was just like, so, yeah, we're going to have this Malcolm X movie, right? And we're going to be in it, right? It's going to be Malcolm X, right? Because I was just so impressed. And I was like, oh, he's, I didn't know who he was prior. And I was like, oh, he's going to be a star. So to see him in Moonlight and then he's going to be in The Wrinkle in Time, I was just like, oh, we're here. We're ready. Mine, I'm so yeah. ready. Yeah, mine for him was The Nick, that show on Cinemax that nobody saw. I didn't see it. Black Doctor. I remember it. Yeah, I heard yeah, he's I very good in that. Yeah, yeah, he was really good in it. But anyway, so obviously we love the film, but I mean, let's just go ahead and say this. Go see the film. Don't bootleg it. Don't download it. Don't stream it. We want them to make more independent black cinema. And I'm sorry, Hollywood doesn't understand anything but its wallets. So please continue to support this film. Tell more people to support it and not just black folks. Yeah. And just as some advice, if you live in the New York area, listen, I know how expensive (laughs) it is. If you go in the morning at like 11 a.m. or 10 a.m. on a Saturday, your ticket will be like seven dollars. Yeah. Trust me, Dude. I'm doing this to help you out. You <laughs> do it that way. That way you support the film, but you're not, you know, having to take out a whole loan to see it because you know how much New York movie tickets are. You're welcome. Yeah, like, and it's lighter now. It's gone to the yeah, yeah, it broke. It broke out. It's still not everywhere, I don't think, but it but it no, broke. No, but it it's broke. bigger. I mean, I'm lucky yeah. I live in Austin where we have the Alamo Draft House people, and I don't know, they must like beg people to get movies because we get movies that nobody else gets. It's like in four markets. It's in like LA, New York, Toronto, and Austin. People are like confused as to how we get a movie, but 
I'm I'm lucky. We had Moonlight like two weeks ago, so I'm I'm been happy. To play off uh, what Jacqueline was talking about too, I want to just make an announcement uh, to the Jamaican dude that sells bootlegs on the D train in the Bronx. Can you like not do the? Can you just like not bootleg this one? Like I don't know, pass out a flyer, tell someone to go like you know pay a ticket to see a movie. I do not want to see a Moonlight boot bootleg. I haven't seen it yet. I don't want to see that on anybody's like bed sheet on the subway train. <laughs> listen, my my <laughs> listen, I'm from the I'm from the Bronx. I Bronx all day. My Bronx brother and sister, please do not bootleg. <laughs> Just please, please don't, please don't. Y'all can bootleg boo a Medea's Halloween. Get Doctor Strange. Do Doctor Strange. You can bootleg. Yo, it's fine. It's fine. Just this one. Let's let's ease off this one. I oh, was just kidding. No, seriously though. Um, thank you guys for chatting. So I'm Jacqueline. You guys can find me online at Miss Blurdus. That's M S Blurdus. And Leo, join with folks find you. Uh, you can get me at uh, at Leonardo E F F on Twitter, and I also do the biweekly Black Comics Chat podcast live on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Jumped for Joy. Joy with the eye, because all the cool joys have eyes in their name. <laughs> and you can find me nowhere else. I pretty much do this. That's not it. <laughs> The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Broadnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.